If you want to spend less time going to the grocery store, then you need to check out ButcherBox. It's a super convenient way to find high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust. ButcherBox only sells 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. And you know what all that means. No antibiotics or added hormones, so you get peace of mind that you're eating healthy food. On top of all that, ButcherBox makes shopping simpler because it gets delivered right to your doorstep. Shipping is always free, and you can customize your meal plan so you're only getting exactly what you want. We've tried everything from pork chops to tenderloins at our house, and they're always a huge hit. ButcherBox prices are as good or better than what you can find at the store, plus they have exclusive member deals, as well as a ton of recipes, cooking tips, and other kitchen hacks to choose from. So sign up at ButcherBox.com LISC and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer, plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. So sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash LISK, L-I-S-K, and use code LISK to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus $20 off your first order. Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot? I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you? And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Mopac Audio. A note to listeners. The following podcast contains content that may not be suitable for all audiences. We here at Mopac Audio are thankful for your support of the podcast. By keeping the conversation fresh and by releasing new episodes, we hope to keep attention focused on the unsolved murders. If you've enjoyed LISC, you can help us by rating and reviewing the podcast along with telling your friends about it. Our ability to keep providing updates, interviews, and finding new listeners is tied directly to your support. Mainly, though, we're grateful for your time and care, so thank you, and stay safe. Previously on LISC, Long Island Serial Killer. Some of the early ideas that were put forward that are not supported anymore. One of those is serial killers would never stop unless they're caught, killed, incarcerated, died. My belief is that LISC is one killer. When we looked at profiling or an analyzing this guy, and the experts in the field tell us that these guys evolve. But MO is not something that's solid. First of all, offenders learn from their experiences. They also mature as they get older. Before we get into the gist of the episode, exploring the question, is this case solvable? There's an adjacent aspect we want to cover, which is, when it comes to LISC, who are we actually looking for? The FBI had uh, 
a comprehensive program where they would go interview these serial killers that were locked up in prison and, uh, you know, actually get into their psyches, into their minds. Uh, you know, what made them tick? And so that's very important when they do an analysis of the people involved in this thing. That's former SCPD Police Commissioner Richard Dormer talking about the investigative tool known as criminal profiling. And here's Dr. Jackie Sabir, a leader in UK law enforcement. Generally, profiling is looking at the characteristics of a person from the crime scene. And it helps senior investigating officers, SIOs, that's what we call them in the UK. It helps that senior investigating officer try and understand what type of person could have committed these crimes. Profilers evaluate how a crime was committed and the victims involved, then use that to create a picture of who the perpetrator might be. Often criminal profiling is given too much significance or the opposite, simply dismissed as junk science. But it's good to remember like geographic profiling or even polygraph tests. It's another resource that can provide insight for law enforcement. For me, and I think for a lot of my colleagues in the UK, it's a useful tool, but it certainly doesn't solve crimes. I can think of a really good case where we did use it, where we had a suspect that had killed his girlfriend, stuffed her in a suitcase and buried her miles away. And we just couldn't find her and tie him to the case. But because the profiler helped us understand that he was a man that really just hated women and wanted control over them. We had females interviewing him, me the senior female lead investigating, female judge, female prosecutor, and he really hated it. The suspect's profile helped detectives understand and get into his psyche. And they used that to provoke him and get him talking. So I think profiling can help push a suspect's buttons. Certainly an interview helps you understand the scene, but it's only one tool in a load of other tools that detectives use. And here's former NYPD Detective Squad Commander Mike Blangiaforti on his experience with profiling and working with the FBI. I've consulted with them too, the profiling unit. It is what it is. Sometimes they're dead accurate and sometimes... It just confuses things more. So you have to kind of combine what they say and you have to take it with a grain of salt. Like, does this help the case? Does it hurt the case? Do I just take it at face value? Sometimes it points you in the right direction. Sometimes it just confuses things. As you might know or have heard through the podcast, the FBI was assisting with the List case. It was only later in 2011 with the change in SCPD leadership that the FBI was shut out. Here's former Commissioner Dormer talking about the LISC profile that was created by the FBI early on when they were part of the process. In uh, conjunction with the FBI analysis unit from Quantico, we've come up with a rough profile. You can't be exact in this thing, but we know that this guy is organized rather than disorganized. He's very careful. He plans it. He carries out the murders very carefully. He disposes of the bodies very carefully. He takes very little risk. He takes some because he, he obviously transports the bodies or remains to the dumping ground. So he has them in his vehicle as he's driving through Suffolk County. Dormer mentioned List being organized versus unorganized. This clarification likely helped them determine that List changed MOs as organized serial killers are more likely to adapt and develop their process. They say that he's a high birth order in the family, this guy, 
white male, probably in his 40s. Father's work history is generally stable. Parental discipline was inconsistent in his family. He's above average intelligence. He may work at occupations that are below his intelligence, or he may work at a skilled occupation, not sure. But he's a pretty bright guy, he's pretty smart. Again, although not a perfect science, one can see how it could help an investigation prioritize suspects, or at least give them a direction in which to start looking for them. He gets stressed out prior to the killings, and this is common in these serial killer cases. They get stressed out. It's also common in serial rapist case, where they get stressed out and they relieve the stress by killing or raping. He's socially adept and usually living with a partner. We were able to understand why law enforcement is sometimes hesitant to embrace profiling. One reason, detectives can become hyper-focused on suspects that fit the profile, which could be wrong, and this leads them to overlooking other viable suspects. Another reason, there have been trials of perpetrators who did not fit the criminal profile, and their defense attorneys have used that discrepancy to raise doubts about their client's guilt. Again, here's Dormer with more on what the FBI had to say about List's profile. I should mention that he doesn't have a sign on his forehead that says, I'm a serial killer. In fact, he blends in very well in the community and with his family members. He's socially competent. He gets along with people. Again, sociopaths are like that. Very glib, everybody loves them, but they're very, very devious. Aggressive acts prior to the debt. And we know that this guy was involved in aggression. Just a word of caution, this next part from Dormer goes a bit beyond the List profile. He shares not as widely known details about what it appears List did with the victims, and it's disturbing. Well, some information that we have from the forensics and from the medical examiner, and I can't divulge, but it will indicate that uh, he spent some time with the bodies. And he hides the bodies. This is not uncommon. They play with the victim. Uh, this is how they get their gratification. Just to clarify, something the medical examiner saw led them to believe that Lisk spent time ante-mortem, before death with the victims, and post-mortem, after death, with their bodies. Also that it was aggressive, and Dormer implies it bordered on torture. And there's indications that this may have occurred. I'm not going to go into any details, you know, but again, it's not just bringing somebody into your web and killing them immediately and disposing of the body. They get the gratification for spending time with the victim. In fact, that's where they get their pleasure from. We believe that this guy is addicted to killing, and he may be continuing to do that today. I should mention that hiding the body is part of that. Now, he didn't take too much of a risk by attempting to bury the bodies. It takes too much time. So from the time he pulled up on the side of the highway at Gilgo Beach, walked through the uh, brush, dumped the body on the other side of the brush and left, was less than 30 seconds. It's still risky. A police officer could pull over to check on why the vehicle was parked there. Although Dormer claims Lisk was adverse to risk, there is the question of how and where did he keep the victims? Meaning if, as the evidence indicates, Lisk kept the victims alive and spent time mistreating them, 
that requires some sort of location. And regardless of how secluded and remote that location might be, the time spent there brings a significant degree of risk. You'd have to be in a private area. If he's living with a family, his family is away. Okay, and we looked at that. That's part of this equation. This is something we've looked at, uh, the investigators looked at. Does he have a warehouse uh, someplace? Does he have a private area where he can have these victims for, for some time, uh, where nobody will disturb him? We know it's horrific to consider these details and scenarios, but it's something that could greatly narrow down the suspect pool. In a more practical sense, these details could be what jog a memory a recollection for a Lisk family member or acquaintance. Perhaps over the years, they've had thoughts or suspicions, but it's these specific revelations that finally connect the dots. So that touches on a bit of who we're looking for. But where do we go from here? Why hasn't the Lisk case been solved? I think the biggest issue is time. This is who we've been calling our area detective. Law enforcement was at a disadvantage in the beginning. They had no time frame of when the original four girls or the remaining bodies were disposed of. And not having a tight time frame typically it hurts investigations. This is not to say SCPD hasn't made glaring mistakes. And we'll soon get into some missteps and errors we think they're still making. But most cases rely on testimony or DNA or technology. And those things really have a shelf life. Things of that nature. And to not have a specific time frame really impedes law enforcement. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store, but did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is your POS command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that unites your in-person and online sales into one seamless process. Easily track every sale across your business and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. You can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify POS Go mobile device. Easy peasy. And if there's ever a question, Shopify's award-winning support is there to answer your questions. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash LISC, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash LISC to take your retail business to the next level today. One last time, go to shopify.com slash L-I-S-K. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed 
or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now looking ahead, what will it take to solve this case once and for all? And what's most likely to make that happen? So what kind of analysis is needed to solve a case like LISC? If I were running the investigation, I would treat every body like a separate investigation. So I believe you have 11 different investigations you can kind of work on. And if you're of the belief that there is one killer, all you need to do is solve one. But first, let's go back and talk about what has changed over the last decade. I think 10 years ago, investigations were run very differently than they are today. So when working homicide investigations, they're pretty much solved four ways, either through witnesses, surveillance video, DNA, or phone work. And then phone work, I entail social media, iCloud, all that kind of, you know, Google. Back in 2010, and even before that, we would have primarily focused on surveillance video, interviewing witnesses, looking at phone records. But the issue with 2010 was that there's no set time frame of when these girls were discarded. It's a horrible term to use, but that's what happened. So law enforcement, to begin with, is already at a disadvantage where they can't look at surveillance video. This is one of those key elements used to solve crimes that is the most affected by the passing of time and the situational aspects of these murders. Most surveillance video typically stores for about 30 days, from my experience. Sometimes longer, but when you don't have a time frame of exactly when somebody was disposed of, you really can't go back and look at surveillance video. Of the four key elements our area detective mentioned, witnesses, DNA, phone tech, and video, it's video surveillance that seems to be the most lacking in the list case. There was video available for what happened at the Oak Beach Gate that early morning, May 1st, 2010, when Shannon Gilbert met up with Brewer. But as you might recall, it wasn't saved by Dr. Hackett or the other leadership on the Oak Beach Association. Here's Gus Coletti, who saw Shannon that morning from a press conference. Gus, what's your reaction? What do you think happened to these tapes that are supposedly missing? They were wiped clean. Well, who do you think wiped them clean and why? I think Charlie Sirota did. And why? Because they were like two months old at the time. Nobody had asked for them. We, in the association down there, didn't even know that they were, that uh, a crime had been committed. Don't forget, this This was May 1st that she was banging on my door. And it was August before uh, uh, the police showed up at my door. And we know there were calls made by the killer to Melissa's sister, Amanda, from Times Square and Penn Station. By the time those calls were looked into, any surveillance footage in those high-traffic areas would have been long gone. And given the nature of the crimes, it's the same for any potential surveillance video at the time. Just to give a hypothetical example, if the SCPD knew they were dealing with a serial killer when the last victim, Amber Costello, didn't return home that following day, they could have checked the previous evening's West Babylon traffic camera footage to potentially find the car that had picked her up. You mentioned the technology, uh, Pete. If I, I, I don't want to skip over that. Here's former police commissioner Dormer. 
talking about the next aspect that can really move cases along. You know, uh, computers were involved, cell phones. This killer, by the way, was very careful in covering his tracks. But given the amount of time that has passed, it doesn't mean the cell phone and technology aspect is a lost cause. So back in 2010, we would write for cell phones. If we recovered computers during search warrants, we would write for those as well. Today, we write for cell phones, but primarily we focus on things like uh, Apple iCloud, Google services, cell phones in general. And cell phones in general, uh, a lot more data is stored by the cell phone companies in 2021 than in 2010 as far as location services. So over the past 10, 11 years, everything we've done has changed. Basically, they still use cell tower pings, but with the integration of smartphones, much more information comes from various functions running in the background. So location history is stored by multiple apps, but typically on the law enforcement end, we're looking at Google, we're looking at iCloud, and we're looking at just the major cell phone carriers themselves. Right now, there's three major carriers. It's Verizon Wireless, AT&T, and Sprint. Sprint owns T-Mobile and Metro PCS. They merged over the past few years. Back in 2010, all five of those companies existed. We would write core orders for all those companies and look at cell phone records. We could dump cell phone towers, actually look at all the communications that register off a specific tower, maybe in Gilgo Beach or Fire Island or something like that. But today, the cell phone providers, they uh, track a lot more data than they did back in 2010. And it's primarily for advertising purposes. So we get more precise locations. We get more communications, actually. So you don't actually have to call or text anymore to register off a cell phone tower. You can pretty much walk by one and some type of communication will register for advertising purposes, which is pretty crazy. But now specifically when it comes to LISC, there have been questions about the issues of cell phones, call logs, tower pings, and tracking, and what SCPD has done or is doing with it. He didn't use his own cell phone. He was very, very careful to do that. And we found out, too, that the social networks, they delete their information regularly. And so it's very difficult to retrieve. So to begin with, when Dormer says Lisk didn't use his own phone, it's good to understand here what that means. So as far as cell phones go, I'm actually a subject matter expert in cold detail records and cell phone analysis. Here's our area detective talking about what LISC used, a burner or pay-as-you-go phone, and how they work, along with what data they have to offer an investigation. So burner phones. Burner phone is just a slang term for prepaid phone. Prepaid phones are offered by every cell phone provider. You can purchase them at a convenience store, at a bodega, at a Walmart. They are anonymous to a certain extent. When you have a burner phone, you don't have to provide any type of subscriber information. I've probably worked on maybe 500, 600 phones throughout my career so far. You don't have to use a real name. And you don't also have to have any mail associated with the burner phone. You add minutes to the phone. You either go to the store or you call and simply you know, add money to the phone. So when it comes to criminal activity, it's clear why someone might use a burner phone. When these phones are depicted in movies and TV, they're often shown as black holes, basically untraceable in a lost cause when it comes to data. But that's not reality. Burner phones are tracked the same way that normal phones were. 
there's just typically no subscriber information associated with the burner phone. So if you write a court order to a cell phone company on the law enforcement ends, you're not getting who the phone is registered to. He'll explain more on that later, but there's still a lot of information a burner phone can provide. They register communications the same way that a normal phone would. To register a communication of a cell phone tower, a call doesn't actually have to be answered. So if you're driving along Gilgo and your phone goes off and you don't answer, your phone's still registering the communication off that cell phone tower. So any theory about Lisk possibly being an ex-cop and knowing that you have to be on the phone for a certain period of time, that's all false. So tracking a burner phone is possible, but there's still a lot of legwork to move an investigation along. So when you have burner phones in play, just writing a court order for a burner phone doesn't necessarily just solve the case. Most of the time, burner phones are not subscribed to anybody real. I've dealt with burner phones subscribed to Mickey Mouse, Superman, Frank Sinatra. But when you do determine what the phone is, you can kind of backtrack and possibly find out where the phone was purchased from. And that's a great investigative lead. Just to clarify, once the phone is purchased and turned on, it will start pinging or communicating with nearby towers. Then, based on when the phone was activated, detectives can zero in on that area's businesses that sell them, and from there, with a lot of sweat equity detective work, zero in on the store and buyer. The problem with Lisk is the bodies were found so far after these girls were possibly murdered that a lot of those investigative leads diminish things like surveillance video, things like records at a convenience store or a Walmart or something like that. So uh, just because you have records from a burner phone doesn't mean that you're going to solve the case immediately. That burner phone may be turned on only when it's used. So if the phone is off, you're not going to register any communications off of cell phone towers. However, if it is on and the owner's making calls, the burner phone is leaving a digital footprint detectives can track. A lot of times suspects use burner phones, they turn the phones off. When I typically analyze cell phone records, I try to get like a decent long time frame so I can tell things of where a suspect sleeps at, where he works at. I look at typical sleeping hours between 12 a.m. and 6 a.m. I look at any communications on that phone. Where is that phone during that time? And at that point, there's a higher probability of where the suspect actually resides. So even with limited use, and if it's turned off in between that usage, over time, patterns can emerge. It could point to a suspect's residence, if, say, used at night. Or perhaps, if used from noon to 2 p.m., that might reveal the area where the suspect works. So we look at things like that, but just because you have cell phone records, if the phone's barely used, if the phone's only used to make calls to a specific person, you're going to get some tower history, but it's going to be very limited. I believe one of the phones was used near Madison Square Garden in New York City, right near Penn Station. That's probably one of the busiest areas in the world. So you have millions of calls every hour going through the same cell phone towers. It's almost near impossible to determine who and exactly where that call was made from. Those calls he referenced, we know were made from Melissa Bartholomew's phone to her sister Amanda. We also know the night Melissa vanished, her phone pinged a tower out in Massapequa, Long Island. But were there other Long Island pings that SCPD hasn't revealed? Something Dormer alluded to that we covered in an earlier episode. Perhaps those combined Long Island pings have narrowed down a search area. However, 
There are other cell records that could be more promising, like with the last known victim, Amber Costello, who, on the day she disappeared, had numerous calls with Lisk. I remember that day, she didn't want to do nothing. Like, she just wanted to chill. Well, this guy kept calling, and uh, he started putting numbers up, you know, like, big money. $1,500, he said. There's a possibility you're staying overnight. That's Amber's former housemate, Dave Schaller, about what he remembers of those four to five calls. So she got off the phone with him, and she's like, well, he'll be here in 20 minutes, half hour. So she's getting ready to leave. The guy calls, tells her he's down the block. And I'm like, down the block? So with what we've learned about burner phones and the cell tower data they leave, along with what Dave Schaller shared, which can be confirmed by his phone records, which SCPD has, the tower pings during those four to five calls, along with any other potential pings registered on towers while the phone was on, should provide some geographical profile of LISC. But it all comes down to what SCPD has and how they're utilizing it. I would love to know what they have as far as records. Hopefully with Amber's calls, along with at least the rest of the Gilgo Forest cell data, there has been some sort of pattern giving SCPD a geographic direction. Via a source who has recently talked with SCPD, we have heard that they have been going through massive amounts of LISC-related phone records. One can only imagine these are records they've had and have already gone through. Regardless, it's something positive. Make sure to download part two of this episode next week when genetic genealogist C.C. Moore and DNA expert Dr. Libby Johnson Examine the different ways genetic material can be harnessed to solve crime, identify does, and maybe even crack the list case. Information about the possibility of other DNA collected during the investigation will not be discussed. I'm not going to get into the specifics on why we do indeed believe that, but uh, we do believe that this item was handled by the suspect and did not belong to any of the victims. On something like a belt that's been left in the elements for years, there's pretty much zero chance you're going to find the DNA of the owner. This episode was written, produced, and recorded by myself, Chris Moss, Jonathan Beal, and Shannon McGarvey. Editing and musical composition by Blake Maples. Executive producers are Jonathan Nauzarden, Jonathan Beal, and me, Chris Moss. Brought to you by Mopac Audio.